Number 523, we've been asked to mark, and certainly as we look forward to the opportunity of singing additional songs together to open the Word of God and study, to allow the wonderful things of eternal import rest deeply upon our thoughts and our minds, perhaps to challenge us and to allow us to be stronger, and perhaps some pearl of truth that we may study this evening from the wonderful Word of God can be that very matter that can be used by each of us today to be stronger this week than perhaps we've been in days past. As we think about the announcements that were made earlier, certainly we have a few items to place on our calendar, so let's certainly try to keep those things in mind and be able to participate, if at all, that we can. A wonderful opportunity to enjoy communion and fellowship in that uh, fleshly sense one with another. Of course, the underlying tie that binds, of course, is the unbreakable bond of the love of Christ. And tonight, as we consider some of the ideas found in the Word of God, you may have noted in the bulletin this morning as well as on the wall to my left. The study before us this evening concerns the matter of fasting. And I thought as we gave some thoughts to that subject this evening, we might perhaps reach a better understanding of what the Scriptures teach concerning that somewhat interesting subject, but also one that from time to time might at least be a little bit overlooked as well. With those thoughts briefly stated, let's turn to some introductory matters related to the subject before us. It is true, isn't it, that we read in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16, the closing two verses of that chapter, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And it's, of course, an interesting thing to notice that that word perfection that is set forth has behind it the idea of completeness being in fact completely equipped and to reach a statement of complete capability of service unto God. Nothing lacking. No holes in fact there that the Word of God cannot allow us to feel in our lives. That alone is a tremendous promise and a great joy to consider, isn't it? That you and I can, through the character of the infallible Word of God, thus equip ourselves to be completely furnished unto all good works. As we consider that very idea, that will be an important point for us to note even relative to fasting. For that means, doesn't it, that the answer to this matter is before us in the Word of God. We need not consult some diocese or some other confine of a conference or some other convention. The answer is, in fact, set forth before us within the pages of the Word of God. Tonight, I would invite us then to look at some of these texts that involve fasting. And as we consider them, we shall find, in fact, some of the following note notations. First of all, fasting is frequently mentioned. In fact, as I studied for this, I found it really was mentioned more times than I had remembered. As we will shortly discover, we only look in the Old Testament to begin. We find some 47 times the Hebrew word tsum, T-S-O-O-M, is thus employed, and it does mean that which you and I would understand to be fasting. 47 times out of the 66, or rather out of the 39 Old Testament books. Notice just a few of the examples, a few of the individuals who did in fact fast. For example, David. In 2 Samuel 12, verse number 16, we are reminded that on the occasion of the passing, in the characteristic or proximity of the passing of that son to, born to him in Bathsheba, 
David fasted relative to the grief and agony that he was experiencing by virtue of the sickness of that child. But in addition to David, notice also Ezra in Ezra 8 verse 21 in a powerful note of his overcoming in terms of his feelings for Israel, where they had come in terms of failure to obey God, he was beside himself in a sense with desire. His heart was broken for Israel and what they had done. The text says Ezra fasted. Not only that, in Esther 4 verse 16, when that decree through the evil plot of Haman had become known to the Jews and Mordecai had made certain to in fact bring word to Esther, we will appreciate that she made the decision, I will go in before the king. She besought not only Mordecai but also the others fast three days on that crisis moment. And in that great period of distress, Esther not only herself fasted, but in fact requested that those who were also devoted Jews would, would, would in fact do the same. In Daniel 9, verse number 3, that noble individual of latter Old Testament days, when the time came that he too recognized the powerful nature of God's providence and that the children of Israel were soon to leave the bondage of Babylon, Daniel also fasted. Another moment of great opportunity and a moment of great decision. Those are just a sampling of the few of the characters of the Old Testament that fasted. And might we be fair to say, those are some of the noblest of the Old Testament characters. David, Daniel, Ezra, they all fasted. And to that list, we certainly will add a few more before the lesson's over tonight. But as if that weren't impressive enough... Look at the New Testament with me for just a moment as we look at another introductory thought. Do we find fasting in the New Testament? If so, in what context and who may have participated in it? You might notice with me, here it occurs some 19 times, that Greek word nestuo. And if you'll appreciate briefly, we notice that Jesus, the Son of God, fasted in Matthew 4 verse number 2 on that occasion for a period of some 40 days. In addition to the marvelous Son of God, Anna, that prophet is described in Luke 2.37 as she was busy with the work in the temple. She too was given to fastings and prayers, the text informs us. We also find later in Acts 10 verse 30 that Cornelius, that gentleman who is held in such high regard for not only his own personal matters but the way in which he aided those of the community, so worthy was he that the text says God heard his prayers. And we're reminded that he too fasted. Finally, the Apostle Paul fasted in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. The record there is given for us. We can even see in the pages of the New Testament the nature and the occurrence and the existence of fasting. As we close that particular slide... I suspect that the question that rests on all of our minds, what's the disposition of heaven toward fasting today? Does God expect me to fast? If so, how often? In what way must I do it if, again, I fast? Is it a church ordinance? That is, should the Pippin Church as a whole set aside specific days, perhaps led by our elders, in which we fast? Those are very good questions. 
In fact, the religious world from time to time has been divided over questions like that one. And so may I invite us to see if we can answer them tonight using, again, the pages of the Word of God. As we do that, let's begin it with some thoughts like this. Might I submit that it would certainly be a fair way to begin to carefully note the definition of that New Testament word, nestuo, and ask in what way that should be employed today, if at all. That word, nestuo, means to abstain as a religious exercise from food and or drink. It thus has behind it the very thought and the very idea that we would have anticipated. As a religious exercise, that is, in the name and pursuit of religion, to abstain from fleshly food and or drink. It is that word again that was employed some 19 times within the pages of the Greek New Testament. This character of nestuo, might we begin to appreciate just a few of the specifics that can be said about it. First of all, the particular character of the fasting as it's mentioned in, in the scriptures had a varying degree of extension to it, meaning that it lasted for varying degrees of time depending on the particular approach and the particular devotion of the person who is doing the fasting. As a case in point of that, there are instances in the scriptures where a certain individual fasted one day. That is to say, this person chose to abstain from food for this period of a day. You might note in 2 Samuel 3.35, again in the days of King David, we have mentioned therein made about Saul's son, Jonathan, fasting for a period of at least one portion of a day. It lasted no longer than that. Notice in Luke, the book of Luke in the New Testament, the 18th chapter, there we notice that that person, that individual who was the Pharisee, said, I fast twice in the week. It would seem from the language that he meant to say that there were two days for him set aside each week in which he fasted, meaning he again purposefully withheld himself from food. And so these particular references are to fastings that were rather limited in their duration. But there are others. Notice, in Esther 4.16, as we briefly mentioned earlier, Queen Esther urged a three-day fast. You might appreciate that under that characteristic, I have placed a question mark beside that one because that opens the following question. Those fasts that were one day or one portion of a day may well and likely were complete and total abstinence from all food and liquid, all food and drink for that period, so that the person could devote himself or herself to prayer, to meditation on the things of God, to the character of ultimate self-sacrifice, and a devotion to the critical matters of decision that stood before the person. But when one considers three days, this may not have been a total abstinence. It could, say, have been abstinence from food, but not necessarily from liquid. Again, there are references to it could only have been to one but did not include the liquid portion. Perhaps that's what was involved here. Furthermore, as we notice, there is reference to a seven-day fast in 1 Chronicles 10 verse 12. Almost certainly that one was again a choice fasting 
where the person abstained from food or certain varieties of it, but not from liquids, say, such as water. And then, of course, one comes to those 40-day fasts. And those are mentioned more than once in the Scriptures. We have the case of Jesus in Matthew, the fourth chapter. There's the case of Elijah in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Even Moses fasted some 40 days on one occasion. With consideration of 40 days, that was again this instance in which one abstained from food, but not likely from liquid. Those matters help us appreciate that the fast had a varying degree of extension in terms of its duration, as well as to the degree of how, of how one abstained from the various elements of nourishment. But that's only one matter for us to consider. What was the purpose of fasting? In what way was it to serve some particular purpose or some particular consideration? Was it God's way in that day and time for people to control their weight? Was it the way that God had them to control their diet? Was this the way that God desired them to maintain a healthy mass or weight, if you please? Did it go any deeper than that? I submit to you that it went far deeper than that. Notice again some passages in which we can see the occasions when individuals fasted. This particular listing is a bit extensive, but certainly it's one that bears a brief consideration. We find in Judges 20, verse 26, that in the latter part of the book of Judges, we find fasting in a time of war. That is to say, when the tremendous activity of people going to war was occurring, when these men were in fact going off to war, perhaps not to return, with all the decision and all the self-sacrifice of family and nation that was taking place, they fasted before they were sent to war. Notice here the fasting was far from something just to maintain a weight. It was far deeper, wasn't it? There was a momentous occasion occurring. These were about to fight on behalf of Israel for his nation, this nation of Israel. And they fasted before the war proceeded. But notice furthermore a great time of decision in Ezra 8.21. Ezra had come to understand God's people had violated God's law. They had done so by intermarrying with the peoples of the land. And of course, it is a very extensive decision when one realizes that in order to again be right with God, I must part from this evil union, even if children are involved. Thus, in that moment of great decision, in that time of tremendous consideration for both Ezra and Israel, there was fasting. In addition to that case in Daniel 9 verse 3, when Daniel appreciated through the prophecies of Jeremiah that the captivity was about to end, there would be a time of great opportunity for the people of God. They would be able to return to Jerusalem. They'd be able to go back and reestablish their worship, rebuild the temple, and worship according to the Mosaic mandates like had been done in former days. We find Daniel fasting in light of that grand opportunity and the character of what soon would happen with the release of God's people. Furthermore, we find in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 3 as well as Esther 4 verse 3, fasting occurring in times of tremendous crisis. 
in, in that text in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we especially find that Israel, the children of Israel, if you please, were in a position in which there was now a time of confrontation to enemies, the Ammonites. The people of God fasted as that particular conflict began to occur. You might notice the other text I've listed in Esther 4 verse 3 again. Esther's life was on the line. In fact, the life of the children of Israel was on the line because if the king did not respond to Esther, if he did not dip the golden scepter to her and thus required her life, there would not have been that opportunity to save all of the Jews that, of course, later came to pass in that book. Those matters perhaps only bring us to the next one in Nehemiah 1 verse 4. Nehemiah fasted in a time of great sadness. Nehemiah's heart was broken when he recognized or heard the word from those who had traveled to Jerusalem, the state of affairs of how dilapidated that city was and how the walls were broken down and how they were in such dire need of repair and how that the people had no protection thus from the wayfaring enemies of the area. Nehemiah fasted as he made preparation to go into the king and to beseech his help and his aid in the activities of rebuilding those walls. Not only in that state, in Psalm 35 verse 13, the psalmist urged fasting in light of the sickness of his enemies. That's an interesting point, isn't it? Here was a person not desirous of bad things happening to the enemies, but when the enemy was sick, the psalmist thus fasted in light of his hope that things would at least be better. In addition to that, we find in Jonah 3 verse 5 that Jonah fasted. That was the occasion of his repentance. Here was a man who just spent some three days and a little bit more in the belly of a great fish. And as such, when he was vomited out on dry land, this man was commissioned by God, you again go to Nineveh. God hadn't changed his commandment to, to Jonah. Jonah fasted, Jonah 3 verse 5, as we consider what occurred with respect to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh fasted when Jonah preached to them the fact, repent or perish. And they chose to repent and did so with great fasting. Perhaps as we notice one, two final ones, in Jeremiah 36 verse 9, as well as Joel 1 verse 14, we notice that fasting was a means of encouraging reverence. Proper respectfulness for God and proper attitude toward Him, they were admonished to fast on those occasions. And then finally, in Zechariah 8 verse 19, fasting occurred in that jubilant time of joyful service. We notice that this spectrum of observations imply to us that fasting was far from just a matter to control one's weight. Fasting was something that occurred in a time of dire need of help of God, something that could encourage one in selflessness to truly consider what God's will would be, and something that would perhaps allow one to clear one's mind of the fleshly, carnal, earthly matters of this world and to focus perhaps more deeply and more carefully upon the teachings of the Word of God, on what God had to say, on what the work of God was, and on the accomplishment of that work. These things all tell us that fasting had a spiritual thrust. And I've listed 
a couple of verses that seem to paint that picture so clearly for us. One of them in Isaiah 58, verse number 3. The other in Psalm 69, verse number 10. I might invite us to look at the Isaiah 58 passage as we at least read it and appreciate the spiritual idea behind the fasting because in many ways that's behind all of these instances that you and I have just mentioned. Isaiah 58, verse number 3. Wherefore have ye fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast ye find pleasure, and exact all your labors. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate, and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast, and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? It's clear, isn't it, that the way that Israel was fasting was not pleasing to God. It had turned into an outward show. It had turned into merely something to illustrate, look how godly I am. I'm fasting. God said it ought to be an affliction of the soul. A time when you pour forth yourself to me, appreciating your lowliness and how desperately you need me and my word. And a time when you allow that thus to lead you to act toward others in the way that I have commanded and in the way that I have set forth to you. Fasting was far deeper than merely going without some food. It had an object behind it, a purpose to draw one nearer to God, to draw one nearer to what He wished you to be so that you could be a better servant to the others. That was what fasting was about. And in that regard, we now perhaps come to asking about the application of these things to us today and to the nature of how else fasting is shown to us in the New Testament. Near the bottom of that particular slide, you might notice the following statement with me. Fasting describes the separation from physical things to devote the will and the focus to things that are spiritual. We've hinted at that already, haven't we? Especially in that text from Isaiah 58. To separate oneself from the overwhelming demand of things physical so that one can devote one's thinking, one's concentration, one's purpose, one's desire and will to what God would have me to know and to be and to do. That's how fasting always was set forth in the Old Testament, isn't it? From the passages that you and I have seen. And that's the same way it's set forth in the New Testament. Near the very bottom of that screen, when we have made note earlier that Jesus fasted, what was the purpose of it? Why had the Lord undergone that fasting? Again, it was not merely to control His weight. That fasting was much more significant, wasn't it? There was the period of temptation to come. 
Remember, following this, the tempter appeared to him, and the first thing he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones may be bread. And following that, he very quickly adjured him, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself off the temple's pinnacle. And he even quoted from the 92nd Psalm on that occasion that the angels will not suffer thee to dash thy foot against a stone. And then lastly, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Those were tremendous temptations. To, in fact, have all the world given to you. May we never look past the deepness and the grandness and the spectacular nature of what Satan offered the Savior, and yet, notice Jesus quoted three times, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he sent the devil packing by quoting the Word of God. Had it been the case that with the Lord's 40 days of fasting, he is attuning himself to the frequency of heaven, his character of understanding the power and prestige and the fact that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, to quote Matthew 4, verse 4. Today, might it be that we could at least in passing thought ask, should you and I not also understand that we do not live by bread alone? Though bread's important and we enjoy partaking of food and nourishment for this physical body, may we never lose sight of the fact man does not live by bread alone. We, like the Savior, need to have our mind tuned to the truth of God and the spiritual bread of His Word. For this, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, John 6, verse 35. That thought hastens us to notice in Acts 13, verse 1, a verse that is in the context of what was read earlier this evening. When that congregation there at Antioch fasted, what was the purpose of it? And we notice there was a significant number who fasted. Again, its purpose was not to draw attention to themselves and to their piety or their godliness. They were about to initiate a mission work that has blessed the world to this day. The first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas was about to be undertaken. Here was a church who prayed and fasted as they sent these men forward to blaze in the gospel across the Roman Empire and to challenge men and women everywhere to know the truth of God as expressed in the gospel and to humbly submit themselves to it. That was a marvelous work that they undertook. And praise be unto God for their initiative and their willingness. But note, they fasted as they sent those men forward upon that great work of holiness and upon that great work of evangelism. Those things perhaps challenge us to come to some extensions of those thoughts and to ask about some notes as we inch closer to striving to answer the question, so should I fast today? I suspect we each are still wondering the answer to that. Let's devote the last segment of our lesson tonight in an attempt to look at some passages that present I think, some very clear teaching on matters like these. Let's begin that in the book of Matthew, chapter 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, as our Savior spoke about fasting, we will not read the first 18 verses of that chapter, though all of it fits rather nicely and rather conveniently together. If you'll recall with me, this is the flow that that particular chapter has. Jesus discussed three matters that had direct relationship to righteousness. 
he first mentioned giving. He said, do not your alms before men to be seen of them. And if I may paraphrase certain places, he said, let not your right hand know what your left hand's doing. That is to say, they were not merely to do works of godliness just to gain the attention of somebody else and just to be patted on the back and just to be complimented for the great work they had done. Your giving is to be a heartfelt matter between you and your God. And if you do it in secret, God will reward thee openly. That was the Lord's promise. But not only giving, next he turned his attention to prayer. And again, he rebuked some in that day who stood in the open courts of the roadways and prayed eloquent long prayers just to be heard of others. You see, their prayer was just to gain the attention of men who happened to be listening. Jesus urged, don't pray vain repetitions. And that's on that occasion when he uttered that model prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he proceeded on from there and urged a prayer of genuine, heartfelt character reproaching one's heavenly Father with a heart that is grateful and thankful and ever so reminded of how one's sins need forgiving, how others need to be cared for in light of, give us this day our daily bread, and even how the kingdom must not be forgotten. All of that brings us, though, to the third thing. Besides giving and besides prayer, Jesus addressed fasting. And he made the following statements. Again, we won't read it in its entirety, but might I ask you to notice verse 16. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. There is a consideration that sounds very similar to what had gone before. You aren't to give just to be noticed by others. You aren't to pray just to be heard by others. You aren't to fast just so others can see you fasting. All of them are to have a deeper significance than that. And isn't it interesting, Jesus said in verse 16, he did not say, if you fast. He said, when you fast. It was apparently the Lord's consideration, his thinking, or he expected that those on that occasion would be given at some point to fasting. But might we also consider the following ideas. What can we now say about those three elements, namely giving and praying and fasting? The first two, we have much information in the New Testament about it. We know well, in fact, that God regulated clearly our giving. On the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, we are to give as we've been prospered, and to do so not grudgingly, but rather cheerfully and not of necessity. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. We thus find that when that church in Corinth came together, we have the explicit statement they gave as they had been prospered. Thus, this was a church ordinance, if you please, but carried out individually. When we come together, we each give as we've been prospered. But considering prayer, that too takes place, at least on occasion, when we come together. It's certainly true that we can pray individually in our homes, and we should do so. But when we come together, we have record the church in Ephesus prayed, Ephesians 6, verses 17, 18, and 19, we have referenced at 1 Timothy 2 to there, Paul besought Timothy that the church there at Ephesus would involve itself in prayer. 
And so we notice that both giving and praying are clearly regulated, and the church can do these things as it comes together. Those, though, are different than what we discover concerning fasting. We find no commandment in the New Testament for the church to fast as a group. We find no commandment for the church that it is the express demand of God that this whole congregation, whatever its name be, would undergo fasting as a communal group. We are left to appreciate, had God meant for that to be the case, He would have given us that commandment in, in clearness and also in great power. That being noted, we thus conclude that fasting is not expected of, say, the Pippin Church as a whole. But we still have another question to be answered. What about individually? Would it be the expectation of God that I and that you would be given to fasting on an individual basis? The only approach that you and I would have to that, of course, is to again look into the Word of God. Near, near the bottom of that screen, we have thus concluded that if fasting is to be done at all, it apparently is left as a private matter. You and I can decide for ourselves whether to fast, the duration to fast, what things would be involved in it. If it is to occur at all, it apparently is left as a private matter. But that does lead us to ask, Jesus, it would seem, assumed or at least presumed that his disciples would fast. We noted earlier that he said, when you fast. He did not say if you would. He did assert that when that takes place. And there is a later text in Matthew 9 that even states it a bit more strongly. I'd like to read that verse. It's found in Matthew chapter number 9. In verse number 14, we have the following interesting conversation. Then came to him, and this him is Jesus, then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children and the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. No man putteth a piece of new cloth on, unto an old garment, for that which is put in shall fill up to taketh the... That which is put in to fill up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Isn't it interesting, especially in verse number 15, Jesus said, Now is not the appropriate time for fasting, for the bridegroom is still here. But when the bridegroom departs, referring to himself, then they will fast. And notice again, he didn't say if they would. He made note, or at least under the presumption, that they would undergo fasting, that it would be a part of what would take place in their lives. It is to be noted then in light of that thought, the apostles fasted. We have record in 2 Corinthians 6, verse number 5. As you'll notice on this screen, the apostles fasted. Furthermore, we notice in 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 5, Paul asserted that married couples may find it helpful and useful to fast together as a means of encouraging a greater sense of piety, as a consideration or an encouragement to a greater devotion, perhaps to God as well as to one another. Those matters challenge us in as much as it is found in the New Testament. 
that perhaps these summary thoughts might well be made. First of all, fasting is that purposeful abstention from food and or drink to frame the mind to more carefully and more closely seek the will of God. We've also learned that fasting is a private matter. The elders of, say, a congregation can't force the membership to fast. That would be outside the bounds of what the Scriptures teach. Noting that that fasting is a private matter, we are left also to appreciate that we find no commandment to it. That is to say, it's not commanded like participating in the Lord's Supper or like the matters concerning prayer or giving as we've been prospered. But that does, I suspect, leave us to notice in the Lord's commandments of presuming that it would occur and the fact the apostles did so and so did the church in the book of Acts, does that perhaps lead us to wonder, would it be a good idea in times of crisis and in times of great decision and in times of great moment, in times of great turmoil and tragedy, might it be advisable for us to consider fasting? It would seem the answer to be yes. But again, it isn't commanded. All I'm asserting, it would seem to be advisable. It would seem that the Lord would encourage us to do so. Might we think more carefully from time to time about fasting? Might we wonder if it could help us to perhaps have a closer walk with the Lord and to perhaps pass through the crucible of persecution or trial a bit easier? It would seem that that's how the apostles used it. It would seem that it encouraged them to a greater separation from things of the world and to greater devotion and harmony to the things of God. Inasmuch as it is not something commanded apparently, but left as a matter of personal choice, might we at least allow it to pass our mind when great afflictions come our way? Perhaps great temptations that are placed before us? Maybe great opportunities would be things at least to consider a time of devotion by virtue of a period of fasting. A conclusion screen, I think, might be in order. In addition to that summary one, it would seem fasting to be an interesting study. It is mentioned so very often, both in the Old and the New Testament, and it's still a safe thing to ever keep in mind how desperately we need the help and guidance of God. And He has provided it amply through His Word. Might we thus consider how desperately we need to rightly divide it, how we should desire to present ourselves right before God as a dutiful servant of His? It could well be thus in a private way, though not commanded, that we might choose to fast for a, perhaps a protracted period to separate ourselves more wholly and more uniquely to the things of God so that we might better rely upon His teaching and upon that separation from the things considered in the world. As we come to the close of tonight's consideration of fasting, I think we have learned it again not to be a church ordinance in the sense that all of us must at the same time in fact, it's not even commanded at all, but it is left as an option and as a choice for you and me. And just as those great worthies of the Old Testament, like David and like Ezra and like Nehemiah and so many others, found it useful on occasion, perhaps you and I could consider it might be useful for us too, at least from time to time. This evening might we notice that fasting, though, is no substitute for obedience. 
If one is not a Christian, fasting will not avail for that person on the day of judgment. We need to, of course, be a devoted follower of the Lord. And then fasting could, in addition, be a helpful matter for us. Are you a Christian then tonight? Are you a faithful Christian? The Lord demands that we believe Him to be the Son of God and that we repent of our sins and that we confess His name and that we be baptized. And when that takes place, He, of course, adds us to the church. If you have done that, have known how marvelous and how wonderful those things have been, but you have not been faithful, come back to that first love. In fact, Jesus awaits so tenderly for you to make the step to come back to Him, and He will gladly welcome you. He'll forgive those sins upon your repentance and confession. And tonight, if we could be of assistance in aiding you in either of those ways, we'd be honored to do that. Even now, while together we stand and while we sing.